This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Lori Paul, a professor of philosophy and cognitive science. This episode is about how art can transform us. Life experiences can transform us in many ways, and Laurie Paul wants us to appreciate how experiencing works of art can be powerfully transformative too. Works of fiction can change how we understand our own lives going forwards, or experiences we've already had. But art doesn't always transform us for the better. When we truly open ourselves up to transformation, we can't know in advance, or ultimately control, what the results will be. Sorry, Paul, welcome. Hello. So, we're going to talk about ways that artworks can transform us. And I know you've done research on transformative experiences in general. So, before we get to artworks specifically, I'd just like to get a sense of what you mean by transformative experiences in general. And and while you explain that, I'm going to pour this tea. The philosophical use of the term distinguishes between transformative experience as something involving a personal transformation and epistemic transformation or change where you learn something new. So epistemic is just about kind of knowledge entering into your mind that wasn't there before? Yes. There's a kind of understanding that you grasp. And that could be a small, minor thing that doesn't change your life, but it could be a profound discovery, and that's when the epistemic transformation leads to a personal transformation. And the way that I use transformative experience is that a transformative experience has to have both elements. So, yeah, so a transformative experience, in the way that you're defining it, does it first involve this sort of new understanding, this change in, in knowledge? And then as a consequence of that, it leads to, to this personal transformation. Yes. And I think one of the most natural ways to think about it is that you undergo an epistemic shift that's so profound that it changes the way you understand yourself in the world. You reorganize your point of view in a way that can't help but change who you are. Have you experienced this in your own life? Absolutely. Yeah? What specific things have prompted shifts like that? Well, I found having children to be transformative in this way, that I wasn't able to know in the most deep and important sense what it was going to be like to have a baby, to become a parent, and then when I did become a parent, it really was a profound change in how I understood myself. And one of the things that changed for me was that once I had my child, I very deeply and naturally preferred my child's life over my own. You can love other people and have certain kinds of preferences that way, but I think this is a very deep and kind of basic shift where it's not even something you think about. It's just, you just care more about your child's life. You would sacrifice yourself. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty big transformation. It is, both personally and epistemically. It's like falling in love for the first time. Again, people can describe it, but once you fall deeply in love, there's a way that it feels that's really part of understanding what love is. And until you feel that, there's a way in which I think you don't understand what love is. Yeah. And, and I mean, so we've been talking about these sort of real life experiences that are transformative, but um, I feel like, you know, I mean, there's lots of works of art that are depicting falling in love for the first time, 
So does that come into this as well, that like there's a role for works of art here? I think so. If I were talking with someone who had never fallen in love and they were expressing interest in me and finding out what it was like, you know, I might point them towards certain kinds of artworks to try to help them grasp the nature and kind of character of this emotion. It should help them maybe understand like the mental contours of what's involved. A different one is I love Jane Austen and reading some of Jane Austen's books has, I wouldn't say it taught me about love, but what it did teach me about was certain kinds of ways in which one has to be patient and sensitive to the needs of others and the value of small interactions. Reading those novels sort of brings out how important detail and sensitivity can be. And that's yeah. yeah, that's an interesting, slightly different example because it seems to me like there are some of these cases where it's about um, a kind of totally different experience that, that, you know, you haven't experienced, but so you can experience something of it through these works of art. But then with Austin, it sounds like you're kind of uh, taking these concepts that also could apply in your own life, right? Like, um, it's not just about those characters in that world, but this idea of like, in social life in general, attention to detail, you know, that sort of fine sensitivity, mm -hmm. right? A certain kind of responsiveness yeah. is something to value. So is that another kind of, or another aspect of these transformations that they can also be sort of like, transferred to your own life? Oh, I would hope so. I mean, so, you know, reading Jane Austen, it's not like when I read Emma, I suddenly know what it's like to be, what is it, 18 in love with a 38-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, some of the interesting ways in which the story between Emma and Mr. Knightley plays out does reflect certain kinds of structures that I find in my own life. So there, what's happening is first you're connecting with a high-level structure that is familiar, but you learn more about that structure. And so then there's an epistemic transformation that allows you to kind of go back to your own life and then employ it. So, yeah, you're like you're using this word structure, um, and earlier you sort of talked about contours. So is there a way in which this, this new knowledge, this new understanding, that there's something kind of schematic to it? Like it's... You know, it's not giving you the whole thing, it's not giving you the real thing, but it's giving you some sort of, like I'm imagining like a sort of architect's blueprints, you know, like it's giving you sort of outlines of things, the things that sort of matter most. That's how I think of it sometimes. I think a lot of what's expressed in artwork might exploit something like that kind of structure. It's like a guide to understanding maybe further properties, both of that situation and maybe you can come back to your own real life event and find interesting kinds of similarities to help you to understand the real life context that you're in. So we've been talking about the ways that like, if you haven't experienced something in your own life, or at least not yet, um, works of art can give you some kind of knowledge of that or understanding of that. Um, can it also sometimes work the other way around? Like um, experiences that you've had in your own life, you might then see depicted in works of art and understand differently. Yes. So. Basically, one of the things that I've been emphasizing here is that experience teaches you something. And so if you have experience of an artwork where, in fact, it captures something that you think you know that is familiar to you already, it can still teach you something new, so it can help you understand that experience in a richer way. 
Yeah, I feel like I've had experiences like that where, like, retroactively I've sort of understood things in my own life differently. Mm -hmm. I can't think of any right now off the top of my head. If you had um, experiences. Sure. Like so I think about, like, my relationship with my parents. You know, engaging with artwork where I understand more about some of the challenges that parents have with their children helped me to understand a bit better my own relationship with my mother, and I hope to act in a, in a better way as a result. Mm. But even the things that had already happened, you were able to understand differently. Yes, yes, you know, the challenges that she faced. I don't think I appreciated from her side how hard it was until I had seen actually films with mothers struggling. And as a child, then you get a certain kind of insight into this other point of view that you couldn't possibly have. Mm. Is there a particular like mother-child film that you can remember? Sophie's Choice. So. Yeah. It's a whole home. And she's told that one of her children will be killed. So she has to choose she has to choose which one will be killed and it's a choice that she can't make. But I'm not talking about the actual absolutely horrible choice that she had to make. That's obviously like you know, my mother never had to make that choice. But it's rather that there's a, a kind of more abstract thing that the film illustrates, which is confronting your feelings about your children and if you have more than one child, how you how you adjudicate between those feelings. The ideal is that you treat all your children the same and you respond to them all in the same ways and everything is perfect and that's just never the case. And one of the amazing things about that film is it sort of illustrates that ordinary problem in this extraordinary way. Yeah, so that understanding of people in a very extreme situation, there's still some sort of like commonality that you can then... Yeah, yeah the suffering that she underwent when faced with these issues with her children, parents do undergo that kind of suffering at a smaller scale. They really do. And it's, I think, very hard for children to understand anything about that suffering. So we've been focusing on transformations that are positive, right? Like, even with your example from Sophie's Choice, it seemed like you were valuing that new understanding that the film gave you about the struggles of being a mother. But I'm wondering, are all transformations necessarily for the better? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, that's part of the point, really, is that when you undergo these kinds of profound changes, they can sometimes be very negative. And what you're doing when you choose to have them is choosing to discover what they're going to be like. And what you're doing by opening your mind that way is sort of making yourself available to the experience. You sort of don't yes. know how it's going to change you in advance. That, I think so. There's a lot of epistemic risk involved in this. and. This is one of the reasons why I think people want to control artistic expression because they're afraid of the ways that people could be influenced or affected by engaging with the artwork. So it's no, it's not just like new information that sort of like is sort of added to their existing knowledge and then just sits there. It's like it's actually gonna like it changes make how them they act think. in a way, make them yeah like it, engage in the world in a different way. Think about it this way. I think there's a parallel here. Where say I came in and I said, okay, I'm going to stick this probe into your brain. It's going to change the structure of your neural activity, right? So then an outside thing is coming in and working on your brain and think as hard as you want, control yourself as much as you can with this outside thing working on your brain. You can't control in a certain way. Well, not 100% anyway. That's right, not 100%. And if I stick it in a very important area, you might not have any control. You might have very little. The person who results, right, is quite different from the person who started with. And it wasn't like anything that you thought about was going to kind of change that effect from happening. 
there's a way of thinking of like the fearsome artwork as the neural probe. Engaging with artwork involves a kind of imaginative, rich experience, and experiences can affect us in ways that go beyond our control. Yeah, one was sort of this this analogy with like the probe in the brain, like it um, it sounds like there is often at least like this space for your own kind of personal judgment or even afterwards maybe you want to like reflect on it and sort of reject something that was very persuasive in the moment um but then nonetheless that experience of engagement was so powerful normally we think in terms of being able to control ourselves and our responses the problem is that there can be a line that's crossed where we lose control if you think about like if you were investigating a small religious sect with a charismatic preacher to find out whether or not it was a cult if you really just had to kind of go in and see for yourself, maybe the best thing to do then is to open your mind and try to explore, you know, what is this leader saying? Is this really true or not? But the problem is, if it really is a, a, you know, a cult where there's a kind of mind control being practiced, then by opening your mind, you leave yourself basically susceptible to manipulation. But yet there may be no way to know unless you actually do. And that's the paradox. I mean, it makes me think like, Every time I like open a book from now on or like watch a movie, I'm going to be like, oh my God, what risks am I taking? How could this change me? Am I going to be joining a cult? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's not like I want to say that this is always the way that we react. I think there has to be a line that's crossed in terms of like the power of the epistemic manipulation or the power of the discovery, right? But yeah, there's always the risk. If you could pick one artwork that you think, you know, the world would be transformed by for the better, which would you pick? I think almost anything by Bach, but I think the Goldberg variations are really very special and demonstrate, especially the way that Gould plays them in in his later recordings, demonstrates a real sensitivity and thoughtfulness and a way of, through music, expressing how one responds to the world and engages with the world. And so I think that... So the responsiveness is the sort of quality you would want to try to sort of bring to people. Yes, because a lot of times, you know, we go through our lives and we just don't attend to the nature of the world in a careful way. Things come upon us, we engage with others and participate in events, and then we kind of go our merry way. But certain kinds of artworks, and I think that piece of music in particular, encourage us to step back and attend to the nature and quality of just experience and to value it. I'm going to go away and listen to Buck's Goldberg Variations now. I mean, I've never listened to it, so you've now given me a very good reason to. Listen to the recording from the 80s by Gold, especially the first five minutes. Well, Laurie Paul, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip discussing the ways that a novel or film depicting a faraway culture is different from actually visiting the place. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at howtoreadnow. This episode was produced by me, Milan Talunen, and by me, Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.